before you and attempt to understand this text. We pray that you would speak to us in power, Lord, that we would um, just learn what you want us to learn, that we would be changed by your word, that you'd give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to to hear what you want to speak to us as individuals, that this wouldn't just be a, a message, but we would hear from you, God, me, myself included, Lord, um, we, we want to encounter you, and you promise us that if we seek you, we'll find you. And um, this is a, a way for us to seek you. So I pray that you would give us the blessing of finding you through this time together. In your name, amen. All right, um, so uh, we've been in the last week of the Lord's life for a little while now. Uh, in Matthew chapter 27, um, we basically saw God's grace and man's depravity, right? We saw the depravity of man uh, and these brutal things that Pilate and the soldiers and the religious leaders uh, were doing to Jesus. And it really comes down to the pinnacle of man's depravity as it was displayed on the crucifixion literally man decided to kill his creator but we also through that see through that the grace of god both things the pinnacle of the grace of god was displayed on the cross the pinnacle of man's depravity was also displayed by men crucifying christ now in this specific text we'll actually look at the cross Last week, we looked at some of the events leading up to the cross because there's a lot of information there. But what we're going to see primarily in this text as we compare man to Jesus, because Jesus is very different than man, we're going to look at the meekness of Christ. We're going to see the meekness of Christ, but we're also going to see the weakness of man. And I'll explain, but this is the title, Christ's Meekness and Man's Weakness, Christ's Meekness and man's weakness. Christ's meekness. Meekness is power or strength under control. See, Christ is going to display his strength through meekness. He's going to display his strength, prove his strength by holding his strength back, not doing what he could do. Man, on the other hand, his weakness, at least his primary weakness, is pride. And we see throughout the Bible that pride is truly the root of all evil. See, man's weakness is that in his pride, he thinks he's stronger than he is. In man's pride, he thinks that he can be his own God. In fact, in man's pride, he desires to be his own God. He doesn't want to submit to authority. By nature, we're rebellious. This isn't a new thing. This ties back to the original sin. This has always been the root of sin. Let me show you. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. When the serpent, Satan, tempted Eve. Look what he says to her. In verse 5, Satan speaking. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You hear that? You will be like God. In other words, you can be your own God. You don't have to submit to God anymore. You can be the authority over your own life. And so many of us fall into just that. We don't want a creator, or at least we don't want to submit to our creator. We would rather him be dead so that we can rule our own lives. Now, we know that's not the truth for us that are believers, but in our original state, in our carnal state, that's what's in our hearts, that natural rebellion to authority, that natural rebellion to God. That's exactly what's going to happen in this text. We're going to see man's weakness is ultimately pride. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. Now, the praetorium was essentially uh, like a courthouse. 
And they brought this garrison around them. The garrison was basically Pilate's uh, bodyguards, okay? Typically, a Roman garrison had uh, upwards of 600 men. Uh, there likely wasn't 600 soldiers there at this point, but this also reveals something to us. See, they're getting ready to crucify him, and it only took four people to crucify a person, right? But you have this multitude of soldiers, not because they have a duty, but because they want to see the torture of Christ. They, they, they're hungry for violence. They want to see someone brutalized. That's why they're there. That's why they're watching. There's an unnecessary amount of soldiers here watching all these things happen. And many of them choose to be a part of it when they didn't have to be. And look what they do to Jesus. Verse 28. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So all these acts are ultimately to humiliate Christ. Point number one, meekness meekness invites humiliation. Meekness invites humiliation. See, they did this to him because they thought they could. He's taken the beating. He's not fighting back. They saw that as weakness. And when you look at some of these things that they do to him, they're essentially mocking him as a king. They even say that, hail king of the Jews, or in other words, this isn't just an insult to Jesus, but the whole Jewish culture, this is the best you could come up with? This guy that's taking a beating, this weak, pathetic man, that's the best king you guys could bring to the table. So they put a scarlet robe on him because many royal officials and, and leaders and kings would wear a scarlet robe. Essentially, they're saying, some king you are. They also put a crown of thorns on him. As you know, many kings wear a crown, but this was a crown of torture. And in that part of the world, we're not talking about like rosebush thorns. These these thorns were long. They were severe. They didn't just put it on his head, but they twisted it on his head. This in and of itself would have been horrific to experience. Utter brutality. So they put the crown of thorns on him. They put a reed in his right hand. Why? Because many rulers and kings would hold what? A scepter. A reed, though, was a really fragile, flimsy bush. In fact, reeds, they used them to make instruments, to make stringed instruments. So imagine holding a plant that was like a guitar string. That thing is like just dangling there, right? That's the point. You're a weak king. That's what they're saying by putting the reed in his right hand. And then they stripped him. This was also to humiliate them, but they often stripped men uh, before they crucified him so that as they were on the cross, again, utter humiliation. But they also bowed the knee before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. This is a little ironic. Why? Because they're doing this uh, as a joke. They're doing this to mock him. But it says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, they're bowing their knee before him as a joke, but soon they're going to be bowing their knee before him in fear, recognizing that this man that they mocked is actually the one that created them. All these things were done to humiliate and mock the Lord as a king. Really, that's what it's about. They're basically pretending that he's a king as a joke. And we look at that and that's raw. That's brutal. The depravity of man. But do you ever do that? Do you ever pretend like he's your king? Do you ever put the crown on him? Not the crown of thorns. The crown that he is your king. The scarlet robe, the scepter. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my King. But what does your life say? See, many people call Christ King, but when you look at their lives, it proves a mockery. And that's the truth. I don't think anyone in this room would look at these things and be like, yeah, I know I could do that. We wouldn't do that. But what does our lives say? 
When we say Jesus Christ is our Lord, when we say Jesus Christ is our king, can other people look at our lives and say that's a joke? <laughs> They're pretending that he's their king, but the way they live their lives, he certainly isn't Lord of their lives. He certainly isn't king of their lives. Calling Jesus our Lord, calling Jesus our king, it's no joke. We have an obligation to be his ambassadors, not make a mockery of his kingship. That's exactly what they're doing. They're making a mockery of his kingship. And the reason they did this, once again, is because they thought they could get away with it. They looked at it and said, this man is weak, he's pathetic, we can take advantage of him, we could do whatever we want to him. This was meekness. He could have done whatever he wanted back to them. He could have judged them right there on the spot. He could have just spoke a word and they'd be dust or call his legion of angels. But he didn't do any of that because he's meek and meekness invites brutality. Now, when we look at the character qualities of Christ, we know we're called to imitate them. We know we're called to mimic them. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says just that. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. But when we look like look at imitating Christ or mimicking Christ, typically we look at a few words, right? Love should be loving like Christ is loving. Forgiveness, we should be forgiving. Merciful, we should be gracious. Meekness is one of those ones we often brush under the rug. The meekness thing, the strength under control, the humility thing. I see what happens to people when they're humble. I see what happens to people when they're meek. People take advantage of people like that. And it's true, but that's the point. He calls us to be meek even when people take advantage of it. See, the world will look at meekness and say that it's weakness, but Jesus, he looks at meekness and he says that's strength. In fact, he also says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. People will look down upon meekness, but Jesus is looking at it and saying, you're blessed. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And when we look at some of those character qualities that's li- that are listed there in Matthew chapter 5, poor in spirit, meek, mourning, mercy, all these things, these are essential character qualities that we're called to portray as followers of Jesus Christ. And you know what our reward is for those character qualities? Persecution. He said, blessed are you right after that. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil uh, against you falsely for my namesake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is your reward for acting this way. You're going to get persecuted. You're going to get humiliated. You're going to take advantage of now. But rejoice, because great is your reward in heaven. There's going to be a benefit. There's going to be a gain. And the world looks at this one way. Jesus looks at this another way. And what the world says is weak, the Lord says is strong. And he displays that strength, even in the midst of this humiliation. Not only do they mock him as king. It says in verse 30 that they spat on him. They took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So it went from mockery to straight brutality. They're whipping him with the reed. They're hitting him in the face. They're spitting on him. And then they led him away to be crucified. See, this march to Calvary's hill was an also was also another form of humiliation. It was so all the multitudes could look at the person and mock and yell and spit and be a part of this thing that the Roman soldiers were uh, were instilling this this affliction, if you will, this consequence for their actions. This whole entire walk was all to humiliate the one who committed the crime, but we know Christ committed no crime. And this person on their way to be crucified would be forced to carry their cross. Now, when we think about this, typically we think like the whole cross thing, that they would carry this whole cross. And the crosses were huge. They were about 300 pounds. That's a heavy weight. But typically, historically, we see usually they would just carry the crossbar 
Okay. And the other bar would be uh, put uh, on Calvary's hill. It would be in a set spot and they would carry the crossbar, which was still about 75 to 100 pounds up Calvary's hill. And then they would be crucified there. Regardless, 100 pounds, 300 pounds, that's a heavy weight. And we can't forget that he was scourged before this. We talked about this last week, but the flagellum that was used for the scourging was literally to bring someone to the brink of death, but just not kill them. Often people would die, but Jesus didn't die. It was to bring them to such a state of weakness that they could barely do anything, that they were no longer a threat. And typically you'd have organs and veins and arteries visible coming out you'd be able to see muscle and bone and all these different things imagine taking a beating like that and then carrying your cross now this text the crucifixion brings light to some of the things jesus said you remember in matthew chapter 16 verse 24 matthew 16 24 and he says this elsewhere few different times. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. We look at that and it's, it's, that text is often, uh, often misinterpreted. I just got to carry me across, carry my burden. What Jesus is saying there and the disciples got this. They knew about crucifixion. They likely had seen it before. They at least were aware of it. What Jesus was saying when he said, if anyone desires to come after me, if anyone desires to follow me, he's talking about all believers. If anyone desires to follow me, let him pick up his cross, deny himself and do this daily. What that means is being obedient to the point of death. Literally, this was what it was. When you um, got convicted of whatever crime and they said crucifixion is going to be your consequence, they made you carry the cross that you'd be hanging on in moments. You literally had to carry the very thing that was going to kill you. That's what that means. Being obedient to the point of death. Being obedient even when it costs you a torturous death. When we look at that verse and we look what Jesus did, he defines what that scripture means. And in fact, he led by example. He didn't do something that or ask us to do something that he wasn't willing to do. In Philippians 2, it says he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's what it means to pick up our cross. It means being obedient when we don't want to. It means being obedient when I don't feel like it. It means being obedient when it's going to cost me something. That's what it means to pick up our cross daily and follow him. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what he's calling us to do because that's what he did. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Now, Simon the Serene, this is interesting. Cyrene is about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. This proves this man's dedication to the Lord. He's zealous about the things of God. Think about it. 800 miles to Jerusalem. And this was likely something that he did three times a year. Why? Because it was mandatory for Jewish men to come up to Jerusalem three times a year for the Feast of Passover, for the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So this was likely something he did three times a year. He was dedicated to the Lord. It wasn't an inconvenience for him to go to Jerusalem and worship God. 800 miles. We're not talking about trains. We're not talking about planes. We're not talking about automobiles. He's either walking on his feet or maybe if he's lucky, he has a donkey. And we complain about driving five minutes down the road to come to church. Like seriously, it's like we have these things. I don't really want to do this today. This is kind of an inconvenience for me. Simon the Serene, 800 miles. Imagine that. Now, obviously, he's not doing this every week. But it reveals something about his heart. Coming to worship worship the Lord uh, wasn't an inconvenience to him. He did this joyfully. If coming to church, if coming to worship God in whatever setting it is, is an inconvenience to you, then I would bet that the Lord would rather you not do it. He doesn't call us to be obligated worshipers. He calls us to be joyful worshipers. It shouldn't be something that I feel like I have to do. If that's where your mindset is, that's legalism. That's what the Pharisees did. A heart after Christ, a heart after God, 
A heart that understands the gospel is compelled by love, is compelled by joy. It's not, I have to do this. I get to do this. I get to travel 800 miles to worship the Lord. Simon the Serene was dedicated. But look what they did to him. It says, him, they compelled to bear his cross. Now, it's not like they asked him or persuaded him, hey, Simon, would you like to carry? No, they made him carry the Lord's cross. But I think there's something even more interesting about this. The Lord received it. The Lord accepted the help. The Lord invited the help. Point number two, meekness invites help. Meekness invites help. Do you struggle with receiving help from some people or anyone at that? I've seen it so many times. Maybe it's somebody carrying a a big load of groceries. Hey, can I help with that? No, 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 I got it. Little pride. That's the truth, though. When we constantly reject help, it's proof of pride in our life. Jesus didn't reject the help. He didn't need the help. He could have just, he could have just spoke the cross up Calvary's hill. He would have been done with it, but he didn't do that. He received help because he's meek. If the Lord himself that created us is willing to receive help, then who are we not to receive help? It's one thing to receive help. It's another thing to ask for help. How often do you ask people to help you? Do you realize that you weren't intended to do this Christian life alone? That's why we have the Lord, but not just him, the body of Christ. Receiving help is important. I want to reference the self-proclaimed meekest man that ever walked the earth, Moses, in Exodus chapter 18. It just makes you wonder, right? Of course he was because the Bible says so, (laughs) but he says it. Exodus chapter 18, verse 14. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did, speaking of Moses, for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? In other words, in other translations, what Moses' father-in-law is asking him is, why are you doing this alone? Why are you trying to do this by yourself? We weren't meant to do it by ourselves. We're meant to ask for help. See, the world will look at you asking for help or receiving help as a weakness. What we see through Christ, asking for help and receiving help is a strength. Why? Because I realize that I can't do this thing on my own. I need the Lord. I need the body of Christ. Without meekness, you won't pray. Without meekness, I won't pray. If I don't realize in humility that I can't do this on my own and that I need help, why would I ask God for anything? But I realize in meekness, in humility, that I am hopeless without the Lord. So I pray I need help, but I don't just need help from the Lord. I need help from you. I need help from the body of Christ. When's the last time you asked someone to pray for you? Is, is, is the mentality, ah, oh, you know, I'll just pray to God and all my prayers will be uh, answered if I pray with the right heart, yada, yada, yada. Sometimes God won't answer your prayers about yourself. Sometimes he'll wait till someone else prays for you and he'll answer that prayer. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, he asks the church, earnestly pray for us. We need your prayer. If Paul was meek enough and humble enough to ask for prayer, The guy that's performing miracles, raising dead people to life. Who are we not to ask for help? Who are we not to ask for prayer? It's pride. That's what it is. If we're not asking for prayer, it's because we're prideful. If you haven't asked for prayer in a long time, you're prideful. It's the truth. In meekness, in humility, we will ask for help. The Lord says that's a strength. Now there's another side of this that, you know, there's those that, that are always asking and taking advantage of people. That's a different thing that I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you struggle in pride with receiving help and asking for help, 
ask for help. I've seen the Lord use this in so many different ways. I think maybe a good example is raising support for mission trips. I've had, uh, or, or coming to Patmos when I, when I used to work there, um, there's a cost to come to Patmos and I'd have these conversations with these students that were accepted that didn't have their money in and we're like two weeks out from the term and they got no money in. And, uh, I'm like, so what are you doing? Like, how do you expect to come if you don't have any money? I just want to hear you out. Oh, well, you know, I got this job. And I'm going to do this thing on the side in the next couple weeks. And somehow I'm going to come up with five thousand dollars. You know, where God guides, he'll provide. Have you asked anyone? (laughs) Have you talked to anyone that you're in need? Have you written a support letter? Does anyone know from the body of Christ that you're in need? See, yes, we can depend on the Lord and he wants us to depend on him. But sometimes the Lord says, I want you to depend on them. I I want you to ask them. I want you to humble yourself, get rid of your pride, don't think you're going to make this thing happen on your own, and ask someone for help. The Lord, Almighty, all-powerful, He receives help from Simon the Serene. He didn't say, I got this. I got my cross. I'll pick it up. I'll take it up Calvary's Hill all by myself. He accepted the help. Matthew chapter 27, verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. So Golgotha, in the Latin, it's called Calvary. Calvary Chapel, Calvary. So that's why it's called that. Um, Same word, just different uh, different languages. And it was also called the place of a skull. Why? Because a bunch of people died there. They were crucified there. But what's more interesting is that they offer Jesus this sour wine mingled with gall to drink. Why would they do that? To numb the pain. To, to help him deal with the physical pain. To help him numb the mind and, and numb the physical. And Jesus, he denied it. Why? Because he wasn't trying to avoid the pain. He embraced it. He embraced every single thing that happened to him leading up to the point of his crucifixion. We often try to avoid pain, right? We don't like when things hurt us physically, spiritually, emotionally. If something hurts, ow, I don't want that. That wasn't Jesus. He embraced it. And by embracing the pain on the cross, he redefined suffering. He redefined the purpose of pain. Jesus knew something that many of us struggle to uh, understand or receive or accept that suffering leads to glory. Suffering leads to glory. Let me show you in 1 Peter chapter 4, among other texts. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter, and in fact this whole book, is written to suffering Christians about suffering. That's what 1 Peter is all about in general. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. Don't be thrown off by it when we face suffering in this world. Jesus told us it would happen. As though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Suffering leads to glory. It says... Jesus, speaking of Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy, James tells us, Peter tells us, Paul tells us, when we face suffering, we should have joy. Why? Not because we're suffering. Nobody likes suffering. But because of what Christ is doing through the suffering, he's changing us, he's molding us, he's shaping us. Now suffering because of the cross is no longer something I have to avoid. It's something that I get to embrace. What about tragedy? What about losses? What about breakups? What about divorces? All the pain. God will work together for good. We don't always understand that. It's hard for us to receive it, but it's a promise from Scripture. I will use this for your good. I will use this suffering for your transformation, for your spiritual growth. The Lord, He didn't avoid it. He embraced it. He could have taken the wine, but He denied it. He didn't want to numb the pain. 
And so often we try to numb things. When, when, when we face tragedy or we face different types of trials or hardships, we want to numb it. Our natural instinct is to put walls up. I, I don't want to ever feel this pain again, so I'm going to callous my heart and get bitter because this is what I think looks strong and this is what's going to help me deal with it. The Lord says, no, no, no. Don't put the walls up. Let the walls down. Embrace it. Let it hurt. Because the hurt's going to be the thing that changes it. When you try to avoid the hurt, that's going to prevent the change. Many people go through suffering. All people in this world go through some amount of suffering. Suffering can either purify us or make us bitter. It's one or the other. Even Christians, you can go through suffering and be worse afterwards. You can harden your heart towards God. You can harden your heart towards people. That's not what the Lord did. He didn't harden his heart towards the people. He didn't harden his heart towards his father. He embraced it. He allowed himself to feel the pain, to teach us a lesson. Perfection comes through the pain. Glory comes through suffering. Don't avoid this thing. Embrace this thing. Let it hurt. Let it feel painful. And you'll see the reward. You'll reap the benefits goes on to say in Matthew chapter 27, verse 35. Then they crucified him. See, Romans, they didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. They made it more difficult. They made it more torturous than it had been done in years past. Crucifixion. It was meant to be the most painful type of death. It was meant to be a slow, painful death. Not just a quick, it's easy, it's over. No, that was the opposite. It was meant for humiliation and it was meant for torture. Now, they would nail someone to the cross. We'll talk about the wrists and the hands later. And they'd nail the feet together. And usually there was a, um, a little piece of wood that they can lift their feet up to breathe. Why? Because that's how most people died on crosses because they couldn't breathe anymore. They ran out of strength. And when their body was like this, they couldn't, they couldn't get a full inhale, exhale uh, movement going on. Their lungs were completely open. So it was really the exhale that they had a problem uh, with performing. So this is how most people died. They died basically uh, by suffocating on the cross, but there were also other ways people died on the cross, uh, sometimes from shock, sometimes from blood loss, sometimes from heart attack or, or heart failure. There were other things that happened. Uh, a lot of times there would be wild beasts and birds and insects that would be eating the body because they couldn't defend themselves. So that would even happen. That's another way people would die. But primarily it was because of the weight of their body in this position, they could no longer breathe and they would uh, suffocate. Now, crucifixion, many of you know this, but it's where we get the word excruciating from. It's where, literally, crucifixion is where we get the English word excruciating. Look at this. Jesus Christ, on the cross, he redefined pain. He redefined pain. We have a new word for it called excruciating. This is what was happening to him on the cross. But let's not sugarcoat it. Think about what already happened to him. They scourged him, right? His body, he likely has arteries, veins, organs, um, uh, muscles exposed. His body is a mess. And think about this. So they scourged him. And what did they do? They put his clothes back on him. Have you ever had a wound and put your clothes back on? What happens after a while? It dries, right? What happens when you take off your shirt after that? It rips it back open. It's like ripping open a band-aid. That's what happened. They put his clothes back on him. Blood dries, they rip it back open. So now his wounds are open twice. Then think about this. He's on the cross in this position. His back is jacked up at the very least. Every time he takes a breath, he has to put his feet up. So his back is just scraping against this wood, probably getting splinters and all kinds of stuff, reopening these wounds. Once again, this would have been beyond excruciating. This would have been so painful. And think about it. Each breath. Do I even take the next breath? Each breath is so painful, it would be better to suffocate. And this is how many people would die. So they would nail the feet, they would nail the hands or the wrist. Which one is it? The, the hands or the wrists? <laughs> the, first service, the first service answered me. It was a trick question. You guys are wise. Um, we don't know for sure. We don't know. So the Greek word uh, for hands, and it says they nailed the hands, uh, is, is, is chair. It's C-H-E-R. Uh, but the Greeks don't have a word 
um, four wrists. So it could have been the wrist. It could have been the hands. Um, it, it seems more likely that it would have been the wrist because the hands would have been really hard to, to hold them up that way. And the wrist would have had more stability to keep them up there on the cross. Uh, we don't know for sure. Um, and they found remains of, of, of both kinds of crucifixions that happened in the past. Uh, but if it was the wrist, what they would hit is a median vein, a median nerve. And what that would do is cause pain throughout the whole arms. Like, have you ever had like a... Uh, a shoulder injury where it just shoots through the, your whole arm. Like I tore my rotator cuff years ago and literally my bicep, not because I worked out, my bicep would swell up like this. My whole entire arm would just be in so much pain because there's nerves that connect uh, to each other. And that's basically what would happen if they did the wrist. His entire arms would be in excruciating pain. Really, it doesn't matter whether... They pierced his wrist or his hands. The more important question is, why did these things happen? Why was he pierced? Why was he scourged? Why was he crucified? And the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, a prophecy written over 700 years before Christ even came to earth. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. That's the point. It doesn't matter whether it was the wrist or the hands. It's the fact that it happened. And because it happened, we can experience healing. By his stripes, we are healed. We get to experience spiritual healing now and for forever. Every bit of pain, every bit of remorse, all of it. The Lord says, I can bring healing into your life because of the pain that I endured. By his stripes, we have hope. By his stripes, we have purpose. By his stripes... We really get to see what, what life was intended to be, what it's all about, and experience the abundant life that he desires for us. Matthew chapter 27. If you still keep your place in Isaiah 53, we'll go back there in just a second. Isaiah, sorry, Matthew chapter 27, verse 35. It says that they crucified him and divided his, car- his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. As brutal as this was, this was God's plan from the beginning. The most brutal plan ever, but there was no other way. Remember, Jesus says, if there's a possible way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, the Father. Without saying anything, was basically saying there is no other way. This is the only way that the world can be redeemed. All of this was to fulfill Scripture. And we see so many scriptures that the Lord fulfilled throughout his ministry, but specifically through the crucifixion. This one was written by David in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, a thousand years before Christ came to earth, David said this. In Psalm 22, verse 14 I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs, Gentiles, have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew's telling us Jesus fulfilled this. Now, David's talking about having his hands and his feet pierced. That's obviously a reference to the crucifixion. Crucifixion didn't even, it wasn't even invented at this time, a thousand years before Christ came. This was so prophetic, it's not even funny. And we know Jesus, sorry, David, he, he wasn't crucified again. It wasn't even a thing then, but that's not how he died. Jesus fulfills this scripture. And this isn't something that just Christians added after these events happen. This is something that's written in the Jewish Tanakh, or in other words, the the Hebrew Bible. It's the same Old Testament that we have. It's just separated differently. Different books uh, are combined, and it's in a different order. But it's the same letters, the same words, the, the same whole thing. Obviously, it's in Hebrew. 
But we also see on the cross, if you held your place in Isaiah chapter 53, he was fulfilling this scripture. We already read verse 5, but I'm going to reread that and a couple others. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was for us all. Everything that Christ did. Again, this was to fulfill scripture. Every jot, every tittle he promised in Matthew chapter 5. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it completely. And when you look at these scriptures, it's absolutely fascinating. The gospel isn't just a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing. It was the plan from the get-go. I've had the privilege of, of reading these chapters to Jewish people on a number, a number of occasions. And most of the time it happens, at least two that I can remember, they start weeping. They start weeping. Why? I don't even have to tell them who it is. Who is that? Who do you think that is? They'll say, it sounds like Jesus. Exactly. Does that tell you anything? They'll start weeping. But never have I experienced one of them coming to the Lord from that. God's doing something in their heart. They know it's speaking of Jesus, but the rabbis won't teach on these texts. Because they know it points to the Messiah that they rejected. And they have those blinders on, as Romans 11 tells us. The point is that Jesus, he did all these things to fulfill scripture so that it would be obvious that he was the one that the prophets have been speaking about for generations. Matthew chapter 27, verse 36, sitting down, they kept watch over him there and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, John tells us that the religious leaders had a problem with this. Why? Because they didn't want to look at Jesus as their king, uh, a picture of man not wanting God to be their king or their ruler. Uh, but Pilate says, hey, I wrote what I wrote and it is what it is. And I believe Pilate actually believed that he was the king of the Jews or at least had a little bit of faith because Jesus told him that he was the king of the Jews when Pilate asked him. Regardless, these were the words that were, were written and they were true. Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now if you will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So you got all of these people mocking and reviling Jesus as if the physical pain wasn't enough. Imagine the emotional pain. He's doing this for them. And they're still mocking him. They're still reviling him. They're still disrespecting him and speaking down to him. But the reason that they're doing this is all rooted in pride. This is point number three. Pride is weakness. Pride is weakness. They reveal their weakness by revealing their pride. They don't want the Lord to rule over them. They're good where they're at. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And that's not just for unbelievers. That's for believers as well. When we think we're standing on our own two feet, in other words, when we think I'm good, I got this, I don't need to change. I've arrived, I've attained. We better watch out. That's the moment or probably moments before we're going to fall flat on our faces. The religious leaders, they think they're standing, but what they're standing on is pride. And they're going to fall. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we begin to see a reason why they rejected Christ crucified. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, <clears throat> where is the wise, where is the scribe, 
Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In their pride, they couldn't get it. It was a stumbling block to them. They thought they were good. They were standing in their own self-righteousness. And what the cross proved is that we can't stand in our own self-righteousness. No one, no, not one can fulfill the law of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God, of God's standard. We're in need of a savior. They didn't want someone to save them. They thought that they could save themselves. That's why this was foolishness to them. They didn't get it. Why? Because they were full of pride. It takes humility to recognize the message of the gospel. It takes humility to recognize that I'm a sinner. It takes humility to recognize that I can't save myself from my sin. It takes humility to recognize that I need a savior. I need help. The weakness of man and his pride. Christianity is a crutch. I don't need it. Why do I need somebody to rule over me? I can rule over myself fine. I can take care of my own life stumbling block they couldn't get it because they were so prideful they were confident in what they were standing on but what they were standing on was unstable it was their pride and it would lead to their fall they also say to him he cannot save himself They assumed that he was weak because he couldn't save himself. But the truth is that he was strong because he could have saved himself, but he wouldn't save himself. Point number four, last one. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness isn't weakness. Christ didn't prove his power by exercising it. He didn't call the legions of angels. He didn't demand them to worship him. He proved his power, he proved his strength by laying it down, not exercising it. It takes way more strength to lay down our strength than it does to exercise it. Especially when someone is beating you, is violating you, is literally torturing you. I know very few men that if they're being attacked by someone, that'll turn the other cheek. Hopefully there's some in this room. But I know many men that will defend themselves if someone fights them, right? Why? Because it's natural for us to defend ourselves. It's supernatural for us to just take it, to, to take the beating. That's what Christ showed us. It takes more strength for us to resist, to say, I'm just gonna take it. And you gotta think about this, like, picture like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime or, or The Rock and you saw some little punk come up to him and just jack him in the nose, break his nose. And he's just like, I'm sorry, man. Did I do something to offend you? Like, I, I forgive you for that. Like, no worries. And then the guy hit him in the nose. Again. Uh, hey, man, is there an issue? Like, can we like reconcile? Can we? Like, you would look at that and be like, what is wrong with him? We're talking about people that we think is strong. God, Jesus created the universe. He has all power, all authority. He's getting punched in the nose and even worse. And he's saying, I, I forgive him. I'm, hey. I'm doing this to reconcile with you. I'm doing this to be in relationship and fellowship with you. That's strength. The world looks at that and says, you're a wimp. You're weak. What's wrong with you? Jesus showed us that that's strength. Not exercising the power. Not exercising the strength that we could exercise. Resisting, being yielded ultimately to the Spirit. And that's what this power comes from. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to yield this way, to resist. Now, I'm not saying that you should never defend yourself. I am saying that Jesus says when we're persecuted, we're supposed to take it. When someone's persecuting us personally. But you could absolutely justify in Scripture that if someone attacks your family or your friends or or the church, like we've read in the recent news, that there's absolute justification for, for, for defending the flock, okay? And just to reassure you, we got a lot of people in here that are more than capable of defending the flock, 
We'll talk about that in a future meeting. Anyways, that's justified. But when the person is persecuting us specifically for the gospel, not just for some reason, for the gospel, for the name of Christ specifically, we're called to endure it. We're called to take it. That's what he shows us. That's what he tells us. Again, this can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Just look at two of those words. Because really, all those words are describing love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. All those other words describe love. But look at love and self-control. The Lord died on a cross by the power of love, his love for the people that were crucifying, his love for us, his love for every sinner in this world, and the self-control not to fight back, the power to destroy them, the power to, to, to inflict judgment, eternal judgment on them in an instant, the self-control. You've heard it said before, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his love for you and me. It was his love for us that kept him up there. Those nails weren't holding him back. But it wasn't just his love, it was his self-control. Imagine that. I would be so angry if I had the ability to get off that cross and do something. I'm confident I would have, but that's why I'm not Jesus. Thank God. Love, self-control, it kept him up there. It says in verse 44, even the robbers crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So we see he was crucified by two other thieves, right? They both originally reviled against him. They, they, they both mocked him and spoke blasphemous words to him. But one of them ends up repenting. Why? Because he sees Christ going through this, not doing anything about it. And then he sees him praying for the people that are crucifying him. And he says, what kind of love is this? I, I, this is not a natural thing. I believe he is who he says he was. And we see one of those robbers, he repents. And the Lord tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. He wasn't baptized that day. Be with me in paradise. That's another story. Shouldn't have said that. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, because it was Passover, this would have been a full moon, okay? Um, This would have been a full moon, and there's no logical scientific explanation how there could be darkness over the entire earth, even if it was an eclipse. uh, Because it was a full moon, it wouldn't have been completely dark, let alone be dark for three hours. So this was truly a supernatural event that took place. What is it telling us? It was the darkest time in the history of man. That man literally killed his creator. It brought forth darkness. It's as if the whole universe is crying out, Oh my gosh, what have you done? You've killed the one that created us. Jesus says, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama samabak, I forget how to say that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. So he says this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was also to fulfill scripture uh, in Psalm 22, verse 1. It's that first part of David's psalm where he talks about the crucifixion. People look at this and say, wait a minute, he couldn't have been the Messiah. He couldn't have been God because he said God forsook him. No, this was to fulfill, uh, fulfill scripture. And yes, in a sense, God did forsake him in that moment in time. And he forsook him so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken by God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He became sin who knew no sin, that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. He became sin even though He knew no sin. In other words, He suffered the consequence for all our sins so that we wouldn't have to suffer those consequences. And by accepting that, we're declared righteous. (laughs) When you think about that, That had to be the most painful point of the cross. Not the scourging, not the scraping of the back, not the actual crucifixion, not each breath that he took in, but for the very first time in his life being separated from his father. Something 
that he had never experienced before, but something that he did so that we wouldn't be forsaken. See, he was isolated from God so that we could have fellowship with God. He was abandoned by God so that we wouldn't be forsaken by God. You know the verse. It's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, 5. It says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The only reason the scripture is true is because of what Christ did on the cross. The only reason he won't forsake us is because he was forsaken for us on our behalf. So he goes on, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We see in John's account, chapter 19, verse 30, what he cried out. And he cried out, it is finished. In the Greek, it is tetelestai, which means ultimately victory. It wasn't like, oh no, I'm dying. It was like, I did it. I finished it. I accomplished the work that I was sent here to accomplish. It is finished. The work is done. He disarmed principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of darkness of this age. He defeated the enemy. He defeated sin. He defeated hell. He defeated death all on the cross. That's why he cries out victory. But not only does he cry out victory, it is finished. He also yields his spirit. None of us can do that. None of us can just go, Lord, Take me now and just speak the spirit up and we're gone. There's probably times in your life that you wish you could do that, but obviously it didn't work because you're still here, right? We can't do it. It's just not possible. We don't have that power. Jesus did. And he told us previously that he did in John chapter 10, verse 18. He says, I have the power to, to lay down my life and I have the power to raise it back up again. Any moment in Jesus's life, he could have just yielded his spirit, but he waited to do it on the cross. Why? Because he had to complete what he was sent to do, the victory that was won on the cross. Verse 51, we're almost there. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. The veil in the temple, well, there was a veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, okay? The holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant typically was before it was taken, uh, but only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies and they would do it once a year on the day of atonement to atone for the sins of the nation. No one else was supposed to go back there. The religious leaders, I would love to see the look on their faces when they're in the temple and they see this thing happening. What was the point where it used to be only the high priest had access to the presence of God? Now everyone or anyone who believes in the high priest of high priest has direct access to the presence of God. And this is clarified in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, I'll read it for you, verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Yes, come boldly, confidently entering into the holy of holies, the very presence of God. Why? Because Christ died so you could do it. But do you take advantage of that? Do you take advantage of entering into his presence through worship, through prayer, through your devotional time? Do you recognize that that privilege cost Christ his life to, to enter into that presence with God and be in that intimate communion, that intimate fellowship with the Lord? That's why this happened. He completed the work. No longer does that sin completely separate us from God. The veil was torn so that we could enter into relationship with them. Matthew chapter 27. This is where it gets weird. Verse 52. Sorry, we also see the earth quaked. Okay, and this is important for verse 52. The earth quaked and the the rocks were split. This This is also interesting. Literally, remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 40, I believe. Um, Uh, when he was entering into Jerusalem and they were all saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, you're our king. We want you to rule over us. And and he says, if these be quiet, the rocks will cry out. Why? Because if his people don't recognize his kingship, then the earth certainly will, that that he is their 
uh, creator, that he is the earth's creator. So we see the rocks actually cry out at his death. The earth actually quakes. Now look at verse 52. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, this is a separate event. Okay, what Matthew is saying, he's not saying that uh, that uh, the earthquake happened and then all these bodies started popping up and they happened to, to, to rise. He says after the resurrection, meaning on that third day when the Lord rose, these saints of old rose with him. Now. It's really hard to understand this because no one else talks about it. None of the other gospel writers, uh, only Matthew. He obviously saw it as significant, but we see Jesus after he's risen from the grave. There's some saints around Jerusalem that are risen as well. And apparently people saw him, people witnessed him just as they witnessed uh, Christ raised from the dead. Now, were they in their glorified bodies? Probably not. I believe personally that that will happen at the rapture, but the people saw something and these dead people that used to be dead were walking around. I believe more than anything, it was a sign or a wonder to confirm the resurrection and what Jesus did. Matthew chapter 27, verse 55, and many women, sorry, verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the Zebedee's sons. These centurions, these soldiers, they see all these events take place, how Christ responded on the cross, the darkness, the earthquake, and then they say, truly, this was the Son of God. But at this point, it's too late. They didn't recognize it till the event was over. Now, I'm certainly not saying that it was too late for them to be saved. Obviously, they could be saved. But the point is, sometimes we don't recognize the Son of God working in our life until it's too late. In other words, we don't give credit to where credit's due. We look at this life for some reason and we chalk it up as, as chance and, and, and happenstance and all these things just came together. But if we would look and see the Lord's hand in our life, we would see that He's putting all these things together. The hard times, the good times. Yeah, that loss. Truly, this was the Son of God working during that time period. Me being brought together with my husband or wife. Yes, that truly was the Son of God. The children that I have, the children He's blessed me with, truly this was the Son of God. The house I have, the job I have, the sins He's given me the ability to overcome. Truly it was the Son of God that brought me from death to life. The point is, we got to realize it during the event, not after. See what He's doing in your life now. Don't wait till it's over and say, oh, wow, that was really God working. We got to open our eyes and see, no, no, God's working now. It's not just God was working back then. He's working right now in this very moment. Truly not it was, truly it is the Son of God doing the things that He's doing in our life. See, Jesus, the Son of God, He showed us that what the world says is strong, he says is weak. And what the world says is weak, he says is strong. It's meekness. It's not what everybody thinks. It's not pride. It's not dog eat dog to the top. I'm going to position myself to get a better pay or a better. Yeah. No, it's, it's humility. It's meekness. That's what Christ shows us. You don't have to be strong on your own behalf. You got to be strong in him. Admit your weakness so that he can be your strength. Paul had to learn this the hard way, and this is where I'll close. In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 8 and 9, Jesus said to Paul, after he had been begging him, Lord, deliver me from this infirmity. Deliver me from this sickness. Like, how is it that I can heal people, but I can't heal myself? And he says, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm not doing this to hurt you. I'm doing this to help you. I'm doing this to prevent you from being prideful. I'm doing this so that you constantly lean on me. If I take this, you might start leaning on yourself. 
And Paul had to learn through the hard way through unanswered prayer that his strength, the Lord's strength, is made perfect in our weakness. We got to quit pretending like we're strong and admit that we're weak. Until we realize that we're weak, he, he can't be our strength. It's recognizing and believing, not just reading the text, but believing. No, no, I am weak. I admit my weakness and allowing him to be strong on our behalf. Because our greatest weakness, as we discussed, it's pride. And we can't be strong in him if we're trying to be strong in and of ourselves. It's admitting that we have needs. It's receiving the needs. It's asking the Lord. It's asking the body of Christ. We need to come to terms with our weaknesses if we truly want him to be strong on our behalf. We don't have to put on a mask and pretend like we're something that we aren't. The Lord showed us. Admitting that you're weak is one of the strongest things you could ever do. And he proved that to us on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your character. We thank you that you clearly define what strength is and what weakness is, and it's often opposite of what we think, opposite certainly of what the world tells us. Lord, so I pray that we would come to terms with our weaknesses, that we would admit them, that we would mimic your your meekness and allow you to be strong on our behalf, that we wouldn't think we have something to prove to anyone, Lord, but we would be confident in who we are in you, that we would ask for help, that we would receive help from from both you and the body of Christ. And Lord, you would teach us what this means, that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Amen.